Welcome to the Robert Half Legal Report, where we discuss current issues impacting the legal profession related to hiring, staff management, and more with leading experts in the field. Robert Half Legal provides lawyers, paralegals, and support staff to law firms and corporate legal departments on a project and full-time basis. The Robert Half Legal Report is here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Charles Volkert, Executive Director of Robert Half Legal and the host of today's two-part program on cybersecurity. It's a topic that's increasingly demanding the attention of business executives across industry sectors, especially within the legal workplace. A report issued last year by McAfee and the Center for Strategic and International Studies estimates that cybercrime costs the global economy more than $400 billion annually. IBM just released a study that found the average consolidated total cost of a data breach is $3.8 million. That's a 23% increase since 2013. And nearly one in five lawyers interviewed by Robert Half Legal for its future law office research said that data security and privacy issues will have the greatest impact on the practice of law during the next five years. As data breaches become more frequent and sophisticated, it's no surprise that identifying risks and implementing prevention strategies has become a top priority for legal organizations. Joining me today to discuss these issues and share their best practices are Thomas Barnett, Special Counsel, eDiscovery, and Data Science at Paul Hastings, Rocco Grillo, Managing Director, Global Leader, IR, and Forensic Investigations, Cybersecurity, and Privacy Services with Protivity, as well as Joel Westhoff, a senior director with Robert Half Legal's consulting solutions practice. Welcome to the show to each of you, and maybe start with you, Tom, and share a little bit of your background at Paul Hastings. Sure. Thanks, Charles. I'm a special counsel in the Office of General Counsel for my firm, Paul Hastings. And in that capacity, I lead a group of data scientists and technical specialists, and we deal with handling uh, client data, analyzing it, using it in the course of different kinds of investigations, litigations, and compliance engagements. I'm also a member of our firm's data security and privacy practice group. And in that capacity, I advise clients in the course of data breach, different kinds of incidents, as well as compliance and uh, consulting offerings where we help create plans and responses to future potential incidents. Thanks, Tom. Great to have you with us. And Rocco Grillo is with us. Could you share a little bit of your background and expertise, Rocco? Sure. Thank you, Chad. As you mentioned earlier, my role at Protivity, I'm in our cybersecurity and privacy practice, and I oversee our global incident response and forensics investigations. And to that end, um, as you can imagine, with everything that's going on in the industry, we've um, obviously been busy responding to some of the most high-profile breaches that you've seen um, in the industry. Um, while we're helping clients uh, respond to many of these breaches, a lot of our time also is devoted to proactive assistance to clients, more from an advisory standpoint. What are things companies can be doing to not only prevent but also respond to breaches? So we get to the point where we're way past the point of 
not a matter of if, but when companies have gotten their arms around the idea of that it's inevitable. And having a mature incident response plan, not only a mature plan, but a plan that's tested and at the same time plans that go through preparation or things that we're helping clients with. So again, working in that capacity, not only responding and helping clients respond to a breach, but also providing them with uh, proactive advisory services. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Rocco. And Joel Westoff? Uh, yes, Chad. So my role at Robert Half uh, is as Senior Director. Um, the portfolio that I'm involved in typically covers the range of uh, events that are triggered by either some type of compliance or litigation need, and particularly in the data security and privacy needs, our practice has grown substantially. Uh, my background is as a practicing attorney and a CISSP in the security space. Uh, I've been involved in that space for about 15 to 20 years. And uh, our practice, like Rocco's, takes a look at the data breaches and privacy issues from both a, a forward-looking and backward-looking perspective. Uh, identifying areas where we can uh, support our clients and firms like Paul Hastings in developing a proactive strategy to identify roles, responsibilities, protocols, and response teams, as well as downstream mitigation of potential shareholder liability suits, uh, regulatory uh, investigations, or uh, related investigations where you may have some type of exposure or uh, intellectual property leakage. So our practice covers a, a fairly broad range of information governance uh, aspects, uh, particularly as C-suite individuals are broadening uh, the responsibilities that they have with respect to the topic of today. Well, that's great, uh, Joel. Thank you. And thanks again to each of you for joining us today on this uh, very timely and important discussion. So let's jump right into it um, with some questions for you all to take our uh, listeners through and get your perspective. You know, a number of serious and well-publicized data breaches have brought significant attention to data security management during the past several months. And maybe, Rocco, uh, you could kick us off and help set the stage for our discussion today and talk about the possible repercussions of data breach. Sure. One of the biggest things that we come across is the unknown when you're involved with a lot of these investigations. There's times that companies may have been alerted to an incident or the potential for a compromise itself. And you know, in many instances, companies find out that they've potentially been compromised in a number of ways. We typically boil it down to about three different ways. The first is that a company has an incident response plan. They've got controls and monitoring solutions in place that help them identify that um, they've potentially been compromised or an incident's going on. Not the best thing in the world to identify that you've been compromised and have it go escalate to your management that we've been compromised. A second way that companies find out they've been compromised, they get that proverbial call from law enforcement that as part of law enforcement's investigation, in many instances, a larger investigation that affects multiple parties and organizations, they've been identified as a company that has been compromised. A third way that companies find out is from either their customers, business partners, or worse yet, from the media. And 
the third way there is obviously never a good thing. So when we get calls from a client in any of those scenarios, and those aren't the only ones, but for the most part, um, the main ways that companies find out about a potential incident or compromise uh, need to get to the bottom of the matter. And that's why um, in many instances, companies need to absolutely have an incident response plan. And almost the way that you have a business continuity or disaster recovery plan, have this plan in place that should the incident um, occur or the suspicion of an incident, you're able to carry out this plan. Really, it's a playbook to identify what's happened and then really get to the nuts and bolts of uh, responding to the incident or breach itself. From the legal perspective, while all of that is, is happening, the actual incident and the response from the technical side that Rocco discussed, there are a whole bunch of legal triggers and issues that have to be dealt with. And these come fast and furious in the context of an incident or a breach. They include potential for lawsuits, for civil damages. There can be state and federal law enforcement actions. There can be responses from customers, from investors, from employees. Any or all of these things are possible, and they can all happen simultaneously. So it's really important to have your arms around the potential risks and the potential sources of different obligations that you have. Many things are triggered by the fact that you've had a breach or an incident. There's different notification obligations, again, to customers, employees. There might be law enforcement notification requirements, third-party providers. There's so many different things that can happen so fast that it's really important that you think these through in advance and have a, a plan worked out coordinating with the technical response team that that Rocco is talking about. So these things need to be coordinated, and I'll emphasize what Rocco said. These plans and responses need to be worked out in advance and rehearsed because you can't start figuring out what to do in the middle of a crisis. There's so many moving parts. Some of the obligations are different. They're they're conflicting, and you have to juggle that, when to notify law enforcement, uh, when it makes sense, when you have to, when do you have to notify investors, how to notify them. All of these things happen very quickly, and the ramifications for how you respond can be very extreme. So you need to be aware of all these things and to think them through and know exactly what needs to happen when an event actually occurs. And this is Joe. Let me pick up on what Tom was just talking about. I mean, I think some of these triggers and, and – um some of the developments in the marketplace around these well-publicized and recent data breaches have led to some very interesting developments. Uh, I, I'll mention four. There's a recent U.S. Court of Appeals decision noting that the FTC can use the Unfair Practices Act to challenge data security lapses. Uh, so that was a fairly anticipated decision that may or may not represent a sea change uh, with respect to the, the way that these data breaches are enforced investigated, evaluated, potentially sanctioned. Uh, the second piece is some of the things that we've seen develop on the legal side that we may get into a little bit later around uh, model rules of ethics and professional responsibility where something like 29 states in the District of Columbia have issued comments to the model rules that attorneys should take reasonable precautions to prevent unauthorized access to client communications. The third and the fourth one relate to industry developments that come out of the two comments that Rocco and Tom mentioned was various industry groups developing guidelines to assist companies in this regard. The ABA has them. Uh, Rocco, I think, and Tom will talk about some of the other ones. The Sedona Conference has a new privacy and information security paper 
specifically for law firms and legal service providers. And then you have the financial services, uh, legal services information sharing and analysis organization, kind of a mouthful, but it's an initiative that came out of financial services that's intended to share information more proactively about breaches. So all of these start to, I think, underline the fact that this is top of mind for both outside counsel and C-suite uh, compliance individuals, privacy professionals, and general counsel's office. Well, that's great. All three of you certainly uh, laid the framework for our discussion. So, you know, what particular security risks do law firms and legal departments face, and what role should legal teams have in developing and communicating, as well as assisting to enforce those policies for organizations? And maybe, Tom, you could take the lead on this uh, with your law firm background. Sure. Thanks, Chad. And those are two very important questions. One, the first is really what is the role of the law firm itself or the legal department as a target, the risks that it faces, and then uh, how can the law firm and the legal department help in the overall enterprise, either the client or the company itself, develop uh, and enforce policies. So let's talk first about the risk that the, that the law firm or the legal department faces. If you think about the role of a, of a legal department or a law firm in advising a company, and certainly large companies, global companies, but really any company, they're involved in some of the most confidential, uh, important, sensitive information that the company deals with, whether it's lawsuits that are going on, allegations of different things, letters back and forth, uh, potential deals, mergers, acquisitions, problems that the company has. Most of this stuff will almost necessarily flow through the legal department. And for law firms that represent companies, that kind of information exists throughout the law firm. So for people who actually target trying to intrude into companies and get information, they have learned that law firms and legal departments are very, very rich sources of important information. And therefore, they have become more and more targeted in recent years. And as a result, Law firms, uh, the type that have that kind of information, and it, it is important to make a distinction, a law firm can be anything from one person to a global organization with, with thousands of lawyers in it. But from the kind of law firm that deals with corporate matters, it's very, very important to address these issues because they have become a very important target for people who engage in these kinds of activities. And typically until recent years, law firms had not really been aware of the threat maybe in the same way that some very, very high-profile global companies were because they were very public. There's a lot of talk about them as entities, groups of people, you know, protest certain companies and certain industries and so on. But in recent years, law firms have become uh, much more aware of the fact that they are a target and have begun taking measures to try to protect themselves in the same way that the companies would. And I think legal departments are the same thing. In a company, there's various levels of importance of information or sensitivity, let's say. And certainly the legal department is, is on the very high end of the sensitivity and importance in information. And because you can't necessarily protect all of your information in the same way to try to quantify what's the most sensitive, what's the importance, what level of protection do we put on that information, the law department within a corporation needs to be considered to be one of the, the most significant targets. As far as the second part of the question, what role should legal teams and law firms have in developing plans 
and enforcing policies in an organization, I believe they can play a very, very significant role because they understand the legal implications that can happen from a breach and, and need to be working hand-in-hand hand with the technical resources, the people who actually respond on the technical side to the breach, as well as help create the response plans. So none of these plans makes any sense unless they're coordinated together because of the needs to notify different parties, whether, again, it's customers or investors or law enforcement or the public in certain cases, the timing of that, coordinating that with other activities, how you discuss the status of the breach, what's going on, and also playing a role in putting in place processes and policies that will help you prevent breaches or respond to them. So I think the legal department and outside counsel, if they have experience like this, can play a critical role in coming up with a successful response plan, preventative measures, and incident response. And I'd like to pick up on Tom's discussion about that role, and I think this is what he's saying. It really needs to be a proactive role. This is a non-delegable duty on outside counsel, certainly on their shoulders, to come forward to talk about the duties, to be able to bridge the gap on the substantive areas of the law and translate those areas into achievable objectives that make sense to the business units, to general counsel, CFOs, the CTOs. And I think historically that has been not necessarily a comfortable role, at least on the technical side, for for attorneys. So I think as you're starting to see the duties of competency and ethics extend to this particular area, and it's made even more difficult as data starts to move to the cloud and, and starting to talk about the concepts such as possession, custody, and control, I think you know the dangers for the breach of attorneys' professional obligations can be significant. So I really think that that underlies the fact that lawyers need to be highly knowledgeable about data security laws compliance regulations, legal requirements surrounding preservation, production. And if they're not, to and to parrot, I think, a little bit in the recent California ethics opinion, to associate themselves with somebody or to uh, engage somebody who can help outside the law firm and help them navigate those issues. What I'd like to even add further to that is the point of you know some of the technology pieces, much as we're focusing on legal, the intersection between legal and IT, legal plays a critical role in responding to a breach, but at the same time, while these may start from a technology issue that quickly evolves to the legal or business side of things, you really need that intersection between legal and IT, and it's the partnership between legal and IT to really tackle um, many of the breaches or even the response to it. Because, again, when you look at the response plan, uh, Tom earlier you know, named a, a handful of different stakeholders that need to be proactive in this instance. The preparation around it, having that um, mature plan includes having the appropriate stakeholders, not only their involvement, but the people that are tapped as a stakeholder need to know their responsibilities. So it's a combination of both the IT side of the house, the legal side of the house, and the overall business embraced together. And it's truly a partnership in tackling this. I think those are great points uh, by all three of you. And, you know, just to highlight the comment you were making, Rocco, at the end with this intersection between legal and IT, we were meeting with a general counsel of a Fortune 1000 company two weeks ago, and uh, he stated that he has a standing call every single day with the CIO of the organization to handle new 
issues in and around information governance, records management, data breach, and security issues. So that just goes to show you and really exemplifies the point of that constant communication and that intersection that we're seeing. Let's go ahead and take a quick break before we resume. To find, hire, and retain the best legal professionals, it's critical to have a sound hiring strategy in place. Robert Half Legal works with law firms and corporate legal departments to create effective staffing plans that can adapt to changing workload levels, realize significant cost savings, and improve the overall management of human resources. We offer a wide range of resources to assist hiring managers and job candidates, including our annual salary guide, industry-leading workplace research, and valuable interactive tools. For more information, call us at 800-870-8367 or visit roberthalflegal.com. Welcome back to the Robert Half Legal Report. With us today are Tom Barnett, Rocco Grillo, and Joel Westoff talking about data breaches and cybersecurity. Let's move on, and and I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the fact that legal departments typically have significant resources and expertise within their companies to manage the security and integrity of the privileged information they maintain. On the other hand, how are law firms addressing that challenge? And uh, again, not to put you on the spot, Tom, but maybe you can kick us off with your thoughts there. Sure, Chad, no problem. One of the things that's interesting about the question is we talk about privileged information, and lawyers are, of course, very familiar with the concept of communications between lawyer and client that that are protected through the privilege or other protections. One of the things that law firms are starting to come to grips with more is that there are all sorts of different kinds of information that need to be protected as well, in addition to privileged information. There's client-sensitive information. There's personally identifiable information. There are different data security and privacy obligations associated with different countries if the firm has a global practice. And so one of the things I think it's really important for clients to think about when they're retaining their law firms or assessing their law firm's capabilities is how many resources and what kind of attention do they pay to these kind of things. As I mentioned earlier, a law firm can be anything from one person, a handful, up to thousands of people. They have different clients, different obligations, different resources to bring to bear. So I think it's a really important point for companies to consider this when they assess their their existing law firms or think about bringing on new law firms, what kind of resources what kind of attention have they been paying to these issues? And this is something that I think has really been developing in recent years. And one trend that I've seen certainly in my firm and other large global law firms is that there are professionals whose whole responsibility is related to data and information security. And they specialize in keeping track of what's going on in the firm, whether there are any attacks what's being done about them, and the keeping up with all the technology that's available to help prevent them. So monitoring activity within the firm's network, assessing third parties, and working with lawyers both on internal issues and dealing with client communications. One of the challenges for any law firm of any size is that there's data coming and going from all different sources constantly, from different companies across the country or potentially across the world, And that data needs to be 
assessed and screened and make sure that there's nothing coming in that could be harmful. There are also many, many people with different levels of access and input into the firm. So the challenge is not insignificant, but because of the attention that clients are paying to this and potential risks, law firms are devoting a lot more time and resources to this. At my firm, Paul Hastings, we have a data security and privacy legal practice in which we advise clients on incident response as well as compliance and preventative measures, but we also are part of the technology committee for the whole firm, so we deal with the issues related to our own proactive measures and how we prevent and mitigate risk within the firm. And this is Joe. I think, to Tom's point, I think we've certainly seen a significant uptick at Robert Half of clients calling us for temp and perm positions in the broad privacy security space, more often than not, quite different skill sets. But we've certainly, in Tom's a good example, certain law firms from e-discovery attorneys with technical background, there aren't a lot of them, start to morph into cybersecurity practice groups or combine those practices with each other. And I think over the last couple years, you know, proactive or somewhat proactive law firms have built practices groups around people who who can bridge the gap in the fields that we're talking about. So what we've seen is new positions emerging in the legal field relating to security and privacy, uh, privacy officers, privacy compliance officers, privacy managers, uh, analysts, data governance directors. Those types of roles have emerged fairly recently, I think, to specifically address the cybersecurity issues that we're talking about today. I was going to go further to that. One of the things, as much as we've spoken about the critical role that legal plays here. The idea of a certain privilege at the onset of an engagement, or in some instances, even prior to that, we've worked with a lot of law firms when we're providing advisory services to clients from a proactive standpoint in either building their incident response program, or even more so, I mentioned earlier, uh, testing the plans, tabletop exercises or simulated exercises. While we can have a plan, how effective is it? And we walk through an actual simulated exercise as if the company were under attack. And in that instance, we find out how strong our incident response plan is, as well as where areas that need to be enhanced or improved. In some instances, we may find something that we don't necessarily want to disclose. So it's not just the actual breach or investigation itself. In many instances, we're seeing more and more companies take these exercises, even if they're proactive, put them under privilege right away because, again, we want to protect the findings of that exercise or even, um, more importantly, during the course of an investigation, um, we want to make sure that that information is privileged and we protect the findings. I think Rocco makes a really great point, and I'd like to emphasize it even beyond that. So in addition to the, the planning and the tabletop exercises, which I think are essential, what I'm seeing more and more and some of our clients are willing to, to go through this are really active tests where everybody involved doesn't really know it's an exercise. So you need to get to a certain point when you can do that. But if you really want to test something, you test it in a way where it's not obviously just a test and you see how people respond. And that's one of the ways you really know whether you're prepared or not. And given the significance of this threat, we talked about the three-point-something million dollar cost average per incident. The costs are there, the risks are there, the PR risks, reputational risks, stock price risks, and so on. So these are very, very serious issues, and I think they're well worth considering having the kind of testing 
where you really put people on the spot of responding without just knowing it's a rehearsal. Well, and maybe, Rocco, you could pick up on uh, the comments that all of you are talking about and talk a little bit about what some effective strategies are and what they should or how they should be employed when addressing data security and privacy matters. Sure. Well, I think one of the first pieces, something that we hear time in and time again, is the tone at the top. While a lot of these breaches are IT in nature or start from an IT perspective, we've seen the high-profile breaches. It doesn't have to necessarily be the high-profile breach, but it immediately impacts the business. We've seen senior executives and other leadership roles lose their positions as a result of some of these um, breaches. We've seen regulators step in. We've seen loss of reputation. We've seen legal issues. We've seen other types of business impact that really is the result of the compromise itself. So I think one of the pieces that needs to be looked at as well is what are the key assets? What are we ultimately trying to protect? We've heard cybersecurity and we've heard having all the right controls in place, but ultimately, what is it that we're trying to protect? And I'm going to give you, you know, a couple of things in parallel. While we want to have an incident response plan in place that's mature and tested and so forth, we need to know what are our critical assets. Many of the executive management teams of firms or even the board of directors want to know not only do we have a mature plan to respond to the breach, but what are our critical assets or the proverbial crown jewels? Once we've identified those crown jewels, um, in the event that they are compromised, how mature is our response? How effective is it in the sense that we want to recover from this compromise? How do we mitigate the damages and lessen the blow or the impact on the organization? And I think those two pieces go hand in hand, not only having the mature plan, but also identifying what our key assets are and being able to recover quickly in the event that they're compromised. Rocco, again, makes a really good point, and I'd like to further it in the sense of what, what the law firm can do, both from its own perspective, but also in advising clients. There are a whole bunch of different uses for information in a company, obviously. We've been talking about it from the perspective of protecting information, sensitive information that could be breached and publicized or used for nefarious purposes. One of the things that companies are doing more and more and need to do with, but they struggle with, is how to organize their data just generally. So there are many different demands on data that happen. And we find uh, in dealing with companies in the context of government investigations or lawsuits is that sometimes companies have, a, have difficulty in identifying where information is exactly, who is it responsible for it, how long will it be kept, is it overwritten, is it preserved, is it backed up, understanding your data overall, where it is, how long you need to keep it, is all of your data subject to your records retention program? All of these things are part and parcel of having your arms around the whole problem. Getting breached and having data stolen or misused or misappropriated is one aspect of this, but there are really, really many different aspects uh, of how the data is used. And what we see is companies that aren't prepared uh, for the security aspects are typically also not prepared to respond in an effective and timely manner in responding to a government inquiry or a lawsuit. And those issues can also present significant risks and expense to a company. 
And I'll just mention one more thing. I, th I think as much as we talk about the need for technical competence, this is as much an organizational change or change management problem that we're dealing with. And to use an analogy, I guess one that people are familiar with, we get on calls many times with legal and IT, which goes back to Rocco's comments about uh, the, the connection between legal and IT, and, and the IT tail is wagging the legal dog. And by that, I mean the IT has decided something, and they want a specific technology, and legal is going to make their decisions based on whatever IT decides is the best choice for, for the IT department. And I think that we need to recognize that IT comes at the enterprise with you know, the goal of improving business performance, the quality, productivity of data, the searchability, improving policy enforcement, security, and scalability. And the, lo the lawyers are focused on risk management and, and preservation and proper use of data in the context of investigations and litigation. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there that I think ultimately is going to make these initiatives, uh, if a company chooses to go down this path, critical in terms of managing the expectations, ensuring that everybody's on the same page as to what the objective is and what the problem is to be solved. Joe, I'll add further to that. One of the key pieces of an incident response plan, that initial phase that's very easy to overlook, preparation. You know, all too often we're ready to jump into an investigation, look for containment and so forth, but that preparation up front can't stress how important that is. It's not an IT or a legal lead on it. It's that partnership that I mentioned earlier. And the whole idea is not to do this in an ad hoc manner each time there's an incident or a potential compromise or a compromise itself. It all comes down to being prepared and having a repeatable process. Um, you can't take this on in an ad hoc manner. We're never going to have a crystal ball and be able to predict the future of what type of attack or incident or compromise we face. But at the same time, that incident response framework needs to be strategic in the sense that it's a repeatable process and we go through that framework step by step up to and including the end of the investigation or the exercise itself. Um, in a lot of instances, everybody wants to get back to uh, normal business operations and resume what we were doing. No one's happy about going through a breach or that they've been compromised, but there's a lot of critical lessons learned that are involved. And there's some things that may have gone well, and like, as I said earlier, there's some areas that may need improvement or enhancements. And these are things that you know we really need to do from a preparation standpoint. And it all starts with partnering as to what are the things that need to be done, who's involved, and even further to that, everybody knowing what their responsibilities are. So Rocco, aside from legal and IT, who else should be part of a risk management and response team? And what are some of the key factors that should be addressed in a comprehensive security plan? Sure, no, that's a great question, Chad. And as much as IT and legal typically lead these investigations, one of the first ones that needs to jump out there is uh, executive management. People that are running the company from a governance standpoint absolutely need to know what's going on with their companies, especially if it's affecting the outside world, whether it be regulators or business partners or their actual customers or clients themselves. As much as executive management governs the company, PR and crisis management, um, there's a lot that's going on in an investigation from IT to legal to executive management. Um, may not be the most opportune time for someone in executive management to make a public statement. So for that reason, public relations and crisis management need to be part of this process. Another one that's easy to overlook, HR. You don't know if it's 
an internal employee, and it doesn't necessarily need to be the irate or malicious employee. It can be an employee that did something unknowingly, and at the same time, as much as they did it unknowingly, they may be violating corporate protocol or something along those lines. And to that extent, you want to have HR involved. Another easy one to overlook as much as we talked about keeping this information contained, getting legal involved, keeping it privileged, end users, our employees, especially the ones that are client-facing. Not necessarily that we want to tell them every finite detail, but at the same time, they need to be armed with information, whether it's an FAQ on what can be shared or who they should be referred to. The last way our end users or employees want to find out is through um, our customers or even through the media without knowing about it. You can imagine how awkward or even embarrassing that would be as if the outside world knows and someone in a call center at a retail location is finding out from a third party that their company themselves have been compromised. On the outside, we talked about outside counsel, having contacts with law enforcement. A lot of times when we do these public briefings, you know, we encourage companies to establish relationships with law enforcement agencies, not necessarily you know, to just bring them right in, but scrambling through a Rolodex or searching for a contact in law enforcement in the middle of a crisis isn't the best time to uh, look for a contact. Insulin handlers and forensics investigators, they're another key one. Even further to that, private investigators, in a lot of instances, you may need to engage third parties to conduct the actual investigations for you themselves. Those are not all of them, but um, a bulk of uh, the many different stakeholders that should be involved. Rocco gave a really, really good, thorough list. I'll just, I'll just add one or two that I can think to that. One of them is the folks in organizations responsible for the management of records and information in the company. So companies might have records management professionals. They can go by different names. But the folks who are responsible for making sure that the important information within a company that constitutes its records, its highly confidential information, its corporate records, and so on, are aware of what their role is. And to Rocco's point, everybody doesn't need to be involved in every aspect of the plan. But there are many different people who will help you execute it or who, if they don't understand what's going on, can hinder your execution of that. So that's another group. I would also say that there's certain representatives from different business units. One of the things we find in responding to incidents or in the context of uh, investigations or subpoenas or criminal actions is that if you have a situation where there's just one point person designated or a very small number to deal with everybody, it's very difficult to get the information you need in a timely manner because they're really starting from scratch with the other people. So I think it's really important to think through who the designees from different business units are who should know about the fact that there is a plan, that there are obligations, that things that have to happen at the last moment. Again, these things don't come with a uh, an invitation or an advance warning, they just happen. So you don't want to think through this at the time. So I would say that having people within the different areas, the different lines of business that the company works in, at least someone who, from those different areas who knows what they're supposed to do and who, who they're supposed to contact and how to get involved. I'll add one more, and it may have been covered by Rock or Tom, but we've been retained in the past by audit committees and more and more uh, auditing the general counsel's office in terms of their access controls. And so what, what has been an interesting trend for us to watch is the re-engagement or engagement 
of senior members of the audit committees to understand better the risk exposure that the company has, and particularly the level of access that various members of the firm may have that may create exposure to the firm or weaknesses or gaps in their security protections. So that's been an interesting development beyond our traditional offerings around internal audits, audits around uh, e-discovery and and related issues that impact uh, cyber risk insurance. And the other thing that I think Tom teed up at the beginning is is there's always a risk of litigation and testifying. So, you know, certainly employees need to understand that part of that risk management response team will be a recognition that downstream you know, there may be um, a need for a deposition or some type of testimony affidavit, a representation as to what was done. And that's where certainly the privilege, uh, the nature of the, the contract and, and keeping things privileged and confidential to the extent possible and appropriate is a key part of making sure that there's a proper flow of information before, during, and after these events. Well, we've reached the end of our program. A special thanks to Tom Barnett, Rocco Grillo, and Joel Westoff for joining us today and providing their expertise and insights. Before we close, I want to let the audience know how they can contact each of you. Tom, could you provide the listening audience with your email address? Sure. Thanks, Chad. So it's Tom Barnett at paulhastings.com, T-O-M-B-A-R-N-E-T-T at paulhastings.com. Great. And Rocco? Sure. Thanks, Chad. I'd be happy to. It's rocco.grillo at protivity.com. That's R-O-C-C-O dot grillo, G-R-I-L-L-O, at P-R-O-T-I-V-I-T-I dot com. Thanks, Rocco. And Joel? Sure. My email is joel.westoff at roberthalf.com. That's J-O-E-L dot W-U-E-S-T-H-O-F-F at roberthalf.com. Again, thanks to each of you. And our listeners can reach me at charles.volkert at roberthalf.com. That's Charles, a period, then V as in Victor, O-L-K-E-R-T, at roberthalf, that's H-A-L-F, dot com. I'd also like to mention a few professional privacy and security associations that offer educational resources, information, and best practices to help firms and companies better manage technology risks. The first is the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the IAPP. The second is the Information Systems Security Association, or ISSA. And the third is ABA's Privacy and Information Security Committee, and the ABA Cybersecurity Handbook, a resource for attorneys, law firms, and business professionals. You also can visit roberthalflegal.com to learn more about our legal consulting solutions. Download our research and subscribe to our legal blog for weekly updates on the legal job market and other important industry developments. Thanks for listening today, and join us next time on the Robert Half Legal Report for part two of our cybersecurity discussion. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Robert Half Legal connects the most highly skilled candidates with the best positions in the legal profession. 
Join us again for the latest information in the next edition of the Robert Half Legal Report here on the Legal Show in the next edition of the Robert Half Legal Report here on the Legal Talk Network.